I'll be reading from the text, Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. These are the family records of Jacob. At 17 years of age, Joseph tended sheep with his brothers. The young man was working with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought a bad report about them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age, and he made a robe of many colors for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peacefully to him. Then Joseph had a dream. When he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. There we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up, and your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. Are you really going to reign over us? His brothers asked him. Are you really going to rule us? So they hated him even more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Look, he said, I had another dream. And this time the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his father and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you have had, he said. Am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. His brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. I'm ready, Joseph replied. Then Israel said to him, Go and see how your brothers and the flocks are doing and bring word back to me. So he sent him from the Hebron Valley and he went to Shechem. A, a man found him there wandering in the field and asked him, what are you looking for? I'm looking for my brothers, Joseph said. Can you tell me where they're pasturing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man said. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him in the distance, and before he had reached them, they plotted to kill him. They said to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. So now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. We can say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. He said, let's not take his life. Reuben also said to them, don't shed blood. Throw him into this pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, intending to rescue him from them and return him to his father. When Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on. Then they took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty without water. They sat down to eat a meal, and when they looked up, there was a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit 
and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? So they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? His father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth around his waist, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, as we uh, continue through uh, this text, as we continue through Genesis, God, I pray that I pray that the things that are probably too familiar, overly familiar, easily overlooked, I pray that you would open our eyes today. I pray that uh, we would constantly ask not only uh, what we're seeing in the text, but what it is that you're seeing in us. I pray that we would see ourselves and see the ways in which we are uh, desperately in need of being drawn back to you, being reconciled to you, and reconciled to each other. And so, God, I pray that even as we dig deep, I pray that we would see what it means to truly love and be restored uh, the way that you called us to. Uh, I pray that we would see this not only as a suggestion, but as a mandate, a necessary implication of the gospel. Let this be true now to your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So we call this sermon, Jacob, Joseph, and the Consequence of Favoritism. And the reason why we decided to go this route is largely because this particular story, it's a story that's well-known, Broadway shows have been made about it, Uh, movies have been made about it. Uh, We're pretty familiar with a lot of the details of the story, and typically the big part of the story, the big thrust of the message is, is often kind of focused on what the evil brothers do in this story. We typically will focus on how evil and godless these brothers seem to be. Uh, We'll focus on ways in which we kind of see Joseph as kind of this this martyred figure, uh, which you see these things to be true and the the sad state of affairs that cause him to go here. Uh, But he's kind of the, the, the hero, if you will. Uh, and and these, these brothers are kind of the bad guys. And Jacob, to some degree, is this kind of mourning patriarch, this godly mourning patriarch. And that becomes kind of our big ticket items in this story. And so the question is, uh, why is this story in here? As a matter of fact, if you're honest, there's several stories in Genesis, some hard ones that leave us. I don't know about you, but for me, it'll leave me going, why does God include this story here? Like, what am I supposed to do with this story? It's very dangerous sometimes with with Scripture because with with Scripture, we often are looking at the Bible and going, okay, Lord, what what does this mean for me? What do I have to do do with this? What what can I do? What action item can I do? Can I be more moral because of this? Some stories help you get there right away, right? Here's an example of what not to do. But if you look at the story like we talked about last week, this horrendous story, you have to ask, why does God include that here? Why does Moses and possibly other authors that are helping, why why would that story be here? 
And ultimately, we've said this a few times, we have to understand that in the text, when God gives us his word and he shares these stories, these stories are included oftentimes, not always to go, and the moral of the story is, but oftentimes it's to say, this picture, this person, this bad person you're seeing doing these horrible things or these horrible situations, this is who we are, or, and, this is who we have the propensity to be. This is who we are, and or this is who we have the propensity to be. So do not read these stories and go, they were really bad back then. It's, wow, we really have a capacity for some great evil, don't we? When we read texts and we see the bad guy versus the good guy, your job is not to try to identify with the good guy. Your job is to go, what aspects of this quote-unquote bad guy do I have in me? And Lord, may it not be so. So when we look at this story and we think about what happens here, we really need to focus on some other aspects of this story. First thing we have to realize is Moses and possibly other uh, scribes and helpers in this text who, who recorded this, uh, for whatever reason, and I didn't realize this until I was studying this this week, more attention is paid to Joseph than any other character in the book of Genesis. More attention is paid to Joseph more than any of the patriarchs more than any of these incredible uh, valiant stories that you see. I mean, think about it. Genesis gives two chapters to the creation story, one chapter to the fall. We have a whole chapter to understand Babel and, and how so many of the different ethnic groups and languages were created. We have chapters devoted to that. You know how many chapters we have just devoted to Joseph? 13 chapters. For the next 13, so for the next few weeks, we're going to be, we're going to try to summarize some things. We're not going to do all 13, you know, back to back to back to back. But we're going to group some things. But we've got a lot of attention paid to Joseph for some reason. Why is that? This prominence is even more, more striking when you consider how seemingly insignificant Joseph's story is because he actually does not get brought up again for the rest of Scripture. We actually don't have anything else pointing back to Joseph, and yet all of this attention is paid. So there's something deep we need to be paying. We need to dig deep into this and figure out what are we supposed to get from this? What is this saying about us? Sometimes we're like, Lord, what are you saying to me? A lot of times we need to say, Lord, what does this say about me? And here's what we, what we see. First thing we see in this text is there's a transition that's happening. We're seeing the transition from Jacob as the patriarch uh, moving to uh, Joseph's story. But the other thing we see is this, this habit, this family habit, this, this family uh, value, if you will, of deception and favoritism. When you look throughout uh, uh, the story, we'll look at it again. When you look throughout this family, you see this sin of favoritism that Jacob clearly learned or absorbed from his mom and dad, Rebecca and Isaac. So much like his father's family, Jacob's family faces the same threat of being torn apart. So when we get to chapter 37, we find Joseph as this young, earnest, albeit possibly immature, young 17-year-old. How many of you have ever met an immature 17-year-old? How many of you have ever been an immature 17-year-old? <laughs> Way more hands, man. That's a good sign of humility. You're actually pointing to yourself more than other people. Something's working here. Praise God. That's awesome. Man, humility. So, so think about this. You've got this, you know, albeit well-meaning, earnest teenager who has been treated like the favorite, 
who has been shown favoritism. That's why we ask, what is the story about? Why is it really here? Well, again, this is showing us who we are or who we have the propensity to be. This story is more than just tattletales and dreams. That's typically where we can go. It's more than just tattletales and dreams. This is about a dysfunctional family, how sin always trends toward a downward cycle and how that cycle ultimately leads to heavy consequences. That's what this story is about. Incredibly dysfunctional family. How those dysfunctions lead us down a very dark, downward spiral and how that spiral will ultimately lead to heavy consequences. So when you think about this family, every single story we've seen within this family, it's highly dysfunctional. Highly dysfunctional. So interesting that God would bless and call a family to himself and say, through your family, everyone's going to be blessed and you're going to have a ton of dysfunction. Like in your mind, you would think if God's going to use a family, he's going to make them about as close to perfect as possible, right? But actually, no, he uses a family that's very broken. And I'm thankful that we see this because I don't know about you, but, but for those of us who have some history with dysfunctional families, for those of us who either have been on the receiving end or on the contributing end or both to dysfunctional families, you can really feel like God can't possibly use me when either I think about the contribution I've made or what I've had to deal with and the baggage that I've had to receive. God can't possibly use me until all of that just gets fixed. And yet there's not one story in the Bible where you find this perfect, just candy apple, wonderful, lovely, godly, perfectly engaging family. You don't see it. You see incredible dysfunction. So having hard things in your family, this is the other thing, having difficult, hard things in your family, that's not what primarily makes the family dysfunctional, by the way. That's because if we understand scripture to be true and we understand that we have this natural bent towards selfishness and this natural bent towards rebellion, then all of us are always going to struggle with worshiping ourselves versus caring for each other. So I don't care who you are, what, what commitments you make, you'll always have that inner battle and that inner struggle. So, so there's something more beyond just the fact that I am selfish that makes it dysfunctional. You know what makes family and, and relationships the most dysfunctional? The refusal to deal with those things that cause the brokenness. The refusal to handle, to face, and actually try to repair the things that make it broken. The most dysfunctional thing about families is when families just look over, gloss over, and ignore the things that are broken. And many times, the reason why that happens is because we think, you know what? Out of sight, out of mind. If I don't have to think about, listen, we have... I guarantee almost every family and every family represented in this room has some dark stories in our family. And we feel so either embarrassed because we don't want it to be true of us. And so instead of facing it, owning it, acknowledging it, talking about it, working through it, we just try to push it out into the deep recesses and the deep ether so that it never gets addressed again. Because we think out of sight, out of mind. If I don't have to think about it, if I don't give, we use language people use now, if I don't give energy to it, then I don't, have to, I don't have to deal with it. it. It doesn't exist if I don't give energy to it. But see, what we see in the text is, whether you intentionally give energy to it or not, it will recapitulate itself in your life, in your children's life, in your grandchildren's life. And when you don't talk about it and face it, no one's equipped to deal with it. No one's equipped to deal with So guess what? That cycle of dysfunction continues, and it doesn't change because of your positive affirmation. 
It doesn't change because you've got good, positive thinking. It doesn't change because of intellectual assent. The only way you fix dysfunction is to face it head on. And so what we see in this family is that there's a form of dysfunction that repeats itself, reproduces itself, and it never gets faced. And so you start seeing some of these same problems coming up over and over again. You see this in families now. All of us have stuff where it's like, well, if nothing gets talked about and no one ever knows about certain things, then maybe they will never repeat it either. And you start seeing that happen as well. As I was thinking through this, I'm like, man, think through. Matter of fact, we can just look at it. We'll look at some of the examples this here. Let's look at some of the examples of these of the of the family uh, dirty secrets, even in Abraham's family, right? Some of the embarrassing things that we've already read through. Some of these hard things, things that they probably did not talk about, didn't acknowledge, things they probably overlooked. Did the whole out of sight, out of mind? You know, maybe if I never bring up what Grandpa did, and it'll die in isolation. And that only ensures that those traits that cause real brokenness has a good chance of happening again. So look at Abraham's family. Look at his story through and through. His dysfunctional family extends throughout history, even to this very day. First example, remember Abraham, maybe out of faith, but probably not, in an attempt to procure an heir for himself. Instead of waiting on God, he has a child named Ishmael with his servant, his concubine. He then shows favoritism to Isaac, who's born later, over Ishmael. And, and so because of the enmity that that creates, casts aside Hagar, the mother of his child, and Ishmael, kicks them out, sends them away. Ishmael then becomes the progenitor of the Ishmaelites. We know that Ishmael's mother was Egyptian in Genesis 16. He, he, he takes for himself an Egyptian wife. Isaac does, or Ishmael does. And then there's, you see this connection between the Ishmaelites and the Egyptians that forms. Then you go to Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, and what do they do? They show favoritism to Jacob and Lee, which caused all kinds of enmity, all kinds of issues, all kinds of jealousy, all kinds of envy, to the point where it was murderous hatred on Esau's part because of the ways that the favorite son, the one that had been shown favoritism, not only was encouraged and enabled to be that kind of a person, but then he was defrauded at the same time. And then you move down and you see what happened to Esau. Esau then becomes the progenitor of a group called the Edomites, another group that throughout Scripture ends up being an enemy of many of the descendants of Jacob. And then you get to Jacob and, and what Jacob does. We've already seen the ways that Jacob has repeated some of the other really bad family traits that are there. This deception that we saw begin with Abraham. We see some of that with Isaac. And then we see some of it, a lot of it with Jacob. Tricks his brother, tricks his father, gets tricked by his uncle, tries to trick his uncle back. Does this deception, this constant deception and favoritism, you realize that when you've been treated like the favorite, you really feel like you're entitled to get away with whatever you want. When you, and this is why oftentimes, even for parents here, it's very dangerous when you almost co-sign anything that the lovable favorite child that you might have, you might not acknowledge it, but you definitely treat it that way. And you wonder how somebody gets older and thinks that the world owes them everything, how they get to a point where they feel like they should be able to get away with certain things. They're shocked that consequences should come. Why is that? There? It's not just because that happened by osmosis. They've been encouraged and enabled in many ways. And you see this enabling happening in this very text. What happens to Joseph? 
Well, Joseph, here's what we know about Joseph. We know that after Jacob goes through everything he goes through, he wants to marry one woman, gets tricked, so he marries the the sister he didn't want in order to then marry the sister that he did want. Then what happens? Well, the sister uh, bears him some kids, and two of his handmaidens or concubines bear him children. And guess what? Those children are not treated like children that are deeply loved because he didn't get to have a baby with the woman he really loved. And then finally, when that baby is born, when Joseph is born, he gets to be the real love child. He gets to be, much like we talked about several chapters before, that child of promise, if you will. He's probably viewing him. Man, God's blessed us. God's promised that our seed is going to be blessed. I bet he probably assumed that all of the blessing would probably run through his lovable, cute son, Joseph. We know that he treated him differently. Why? Because he gave him this incredibly beautiful, what do they call it, the Technicolor dream coat? (laughs) This beautiful coat or robe with these vibrant colors and, and what it demonstrated, what it showed, what it symbolized to these other siblings. This is a special one. This is the one that I show favoritism to. And so you see how uh, shortly after that, what what you see is what happens to Joseph. Joseph ends up getting sold into slavery by his brothers to the Ishmaelites. Keep that in mind, because in a little bit, we're going to see why that's very significant. Why the Ishmaelites? You know, some texts, they'll combine both the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, like you see here. Why that? That actually matters. And it actually, actually connects back to that same sin of favoritism. So hold, hold your, your thumb there as we, as we go forward. When you think about these groups that are there, many trace the Edomites to people groups in Jordan, Gaza, southern Turkey, Syria, and Lebanon today. And many Arab peoples trace their lineage back to the Ishmaelites. And when you look at how many conflicts in the Middle East can find their genesis in the dysfunction of Abraham's family, favoritism has heavy, far-reaching consequences far-reaching consequences. So when you look at these these first few verses, and you look at uh, Jacob, and you see what happens in in, uh, verses one and two, what do we see here? We see Joseph as the key figure of this book. From here on forward, uh, we see for the next 13 chapters, we're going to see a lot about Joseph. The first thing we see, though, is who's Joseph uh, looking for? Who are the brothers they're referring to here? The sons of uh, Bilhah and Zilpah. These are the two concubines, the two uh, uh, servant women, slave women that are forced to be there. We talked a good deal about all of that and the injustice that's there and how that was something that was overlooked and used and people were exploited. So he's got these, these women. Women who he, with whom he's had children. These children are now rivals of Joseph. You got to think, like be very realistic and think, what was that like? What, was that, what were the family dinners like? I mean, you've got all the ones that are born, quote unquote, illegitimately. I even hate that word, but that's the word that people would often use. The, these illegitimate children, the ones that aren't really the ones that are of promise, that, that aren't really the ones that came out of real love. And then you've got the love child. And every, every, every dinner session, you would imagine that the way that he would talk to Joseph might be quite different than the way he would talk to the other brothers. And so life goes on, and, and Joseph grows up, and we see that he gets to this point. Uh, he's at 17 years old, and he's tending sheep with his brothers. And he's out with uh, the brothers of, 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 of his father's wives and concubines. And, and the scripture says he brought a bad report about them to their father. 
So something they were doing, something likely that was uh, that they should not have been doing, he came back to tell his father, hey, you know, it looks like he's tattletailing on his brothers, right? It, just lo- it looks like that, right? You can easily look at that and go, see, don't be a snitch. You know, you could easily be like, you know, snitches get stitches, and this is kind of the reason, this is the first example in Scripture where it happens that way. And the, the, when the Scripture says he brought a bad report, uh, this, this word, bad report, is this Hebrew word, dibai, and, and actually, you see it nine times in the Old Testament. It's the same word that's used when Moses sends the spies to the promised land, and they go to the promised land, and they see what's happening there, and they come back and they bring Moses a bad report. This has a heavily negative connotation. It is something bad. It's something threatening. It's something meant to bring real urgency. So, so Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph, privileged Joseph, the one who has gotten everything handed to him, the one who's probably been defended by daddy all the time, the one who probably has never had to defend himself, he's been covered by his father on all fronts, is now coming back to say, hey, dad, they're wilding out here. That's another word for unsavory behavior, in case you're curious. And so now what do I do with this? What, how, how, what is Jacob or what is Joseph doing? He's coming back going, I'm going to tell. Dad's going to have my back. I'm going to do it. Here's, here's also really interesting. When you look at the next passage, you look at verses 3 and 4. Uh, now Israel loved Joseph more than his other sons because Joseph was a son born to him in his old age. Real quick here. Favoritism always is rooted in you and not in the object you're loving or the person that you're loving. You see, J- Jacob loves Joseph so much because it actually has something to do with himself. I love Joseph because I had him, because I had him in my old age, because I had a child with a woman that I love. Joseph is one that I love because it reminds me to some degree of myself. Now, there's a healthy way that we do that as for those who are parents or even those who just have siblings or family members or friends. There's something about other people that remind you of yourself, and you love that. So when you're a parent, you really love, whether it's physically they look like you or certain attributes that you have that are now seemingly uh, on, on, on display in this child, it's hard to separate how much of that is selfish and how much of that is genuine enjoyment and, and, and praiseworthy things about your child. But Jacob is in the same boat that a lot of us can be in. I just, I love the ways that my child reminds me of me. I love the way they look like me. I love the way they talk like me. I love the way that they play like me. I love the way that they argue like me. I love the way that they're quiet like me. There's all these things about this child that reminds me of me. And to that degree, I love it, but it really is rooted in me. See, ultimately, as Christians, it's, yes, there are things humanly that we love about our kids. We can't get away. Yes, I love that. It does remind me of that. Lord, how do I get to a point where I love more the ways that they look like you as opposed to the ways that they look like me. And for some of us, it might be hard to separate those two because in our minds, we've almost made ourselves equal to Jesus. And so J- Jacob is in this place where he's doing what any, many people would do, many parents would do, many people would do. Man, this, this is my son. This is the one that I had when I was old. Not many people have kids when they're old. This reminds me, I'm virile, I'm strong. I made a baby. When I was geriatric, can't nobody do that. He's reminded of how great he is. That's what, that's what Joseph gets to do. And so he loves him more than the others. The scripture tells us that. 
Not only do we know that internally, but we, we know it externally because all of the siblings recognized it. They knew it. So there was some way that he was demonstrating, some way that he was comporting himself that made it obvious that he was showing favoritism to Joseph. And here's the thing. When you're showing favoritism, when you're showing favorites and you're, you're playing favorites, you may not even know that you're doing it, but the people around do know. And then it begins to engender frustration, bitterness, hatred, all of these other things. And it's really easy to start with, just stop being bitter. Just be thankful for what you have. And all those things are true. But as a parent, you have to step back and go, wait, what, what ways am I the one that's actually exacerbating all of this hatred and this frustration and all of this jealousy and this rivalry? It's easy to be the one that causes the problem and then say, hey, do better with the consequences of this problem I started. And see, this is where Joseph, I mean, Jacob doesn't even seem to be aware of it. And also Joseph doesn't seem to be aware either. So when you look at the brothers here, it's, it's, it's common. It's not right. It's not justifiable, but you can understand why you would then direct your anger toward the one who was the favored one. Because they probably knew they wouldn't get anywhere by talking to dad about it. And so you're like, man, I'm, I'm angry because we're out here slaving over X, Y, and Z. We're working out here. We're doing all this heavy work. And he gets to sit, keep his nails real pretty, and have his nice, I don't know, fuchsia-colored. Uh, <laughs> I just imagine fuchsia. I don't know why. He's got this nice, pretty-colored robe, and he doesn't want to get his robe dirty. So we're out here doing all this work because he's the special one. So you can see how they would feel a degree of bitterness and frustration. These brothers, the scripture kind of shows us that not only are they angry, but it says they hated him and could not bring themselves to speak peaceably to him. And again, we can, we can definitely come down hard on them. And, and, and it's true, what they're doing is wrong and it's sinful and it's rooted in deep sin. But, but, but it was something that was actually provoked, right? Remember, you see in the New Testament, it says, fathers, don't do what? Don't provoke your children to wrath. This is a great way to provoke your children to wrath and then act like, you know, I used to always think growing up, parents used to always say, children obey your parents. <laughs> they always say this, right? This is well-pleasing to the Lord so that your days be long. And I remember one time my brother was like, dad, it also says don't provoke your children to wrath. Shut up, I didn't ask you all of that. <laughs> but they're both true, aren't they? It's one thing to say obey. It's another thing that says, please don't provoke me to wrath. And you can honestly see how Jacob certainly provoked the other unloved to a degree sons to wrath. And, and, and the other thing that happens is, and this is another danger, when you show favoritism to a child, and when I, the way we're defining favoritism is this, when you show inequitable love, when the love you show to one is not equal proportionally at all to the love you're showing to others, when that is the case, you're showing favoritism. When you're treating them, when you're offering and giving certain things for provision to one and not to another, you're showing favoritism. And so he shows this favoritism to Joseph. Now, what happens to someone who's on the receiving end of favoritism? I don't care how much a child that can be loving and peaceful and wonderful, if they're just constantly being shown, you're great, I love you, you're great, I love you, there's really no correction, there's really nothing else, you start believing your own press clippings and it's almost impossible for you to be self-aware. 
It's the reason why oftentimes what we call love was really more spoiling and in many ways not truly preparing someone to do real heart work. You could have somebody who has been poured into, that's great. Loved well, that's great. But enabled in such a way, they're not even aware of how their actions affect other people. They're not aware of the ways in which they're actually causing more division amongst the people around them because they've just been told how great they are all the time. They've just been showed that kind of love per se all the time. And this is actually where I believe Joseph is. Joseph is not self-aware. Joseph is not self-aware. If Joseph were self-aware, think about this. If you're aware, if you're picking up, oh man, yeah, dad, you keep giving me all the big pieces of chicken and they're just getting like the gristle. We got to do, I'm not saying that happened, but just think, think, think about that for a minute. They're getting some things I'm not, I'm not, I'm getting better things than they are, dad. I'm, uh, the treatment I'm getting is a, seems to be a lot better. Dad, I don't know if you noticed, but like Ruben's kicking me under the table and I, I got a, I got a spot where he pinched me uh, before. Dad, I, I don't know if you noticed, you need to stop giving me all this stuff. That's not where he is. And you know it's not because look at where he goes. When you look at uh, verse five, then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, stop. Why did he tell them to the brothers? Why would you do that if you're aware of what's happening? You're not. You're just not aware. So you're like, guess what? In, in, in regular world, I've been told how great I am. Guess what? I just had a dream that said how great I am. In the regular world, I've been treated better than you all this time. Guess what? I had a dream that said I'm going to be better than y'all. Why, if you're self-aware, would you ever share that information? In that way, right? Why would you not even come with like a point of humility and going, Guys, I know what's been going on, and I, I don't even know that I really want to, I don't even know how to accept this or even understand this. It might be just a dream. I don't know, but maybe you guys can help me work through this. You know, if it were me, I might even start just withholding some details first. Maybe I'll talk to dad first. Probably don't just wait when everybody's just sitting there around the fire to have a nice fireside chat about how I'm going to be y'all's king. That's just not normal if you're self-aware. But he's not because of the ways that his father has actually crippled him. And so he, he jumps in and he tells him a dream. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. You think? Joseph is ignorant, and he's naive of their hatred. There's no way you would share a dream about you being superior. When you look at that phrase, hated him all the more, that phrase, all the more, is the word yasaf, which is where we get the word Joseph from. Because to, uh, what Joseph means is literally to add. So this word yasaf literally means they added still more hate. So the hate was already there. They just added more to it. Because they already were angry. You're getting all this stuff from dad all the time. Now apparently God is doing this for you too. And they're feeling bitter and they're feeling angry. And, and, and so they, somehow he doesn't always pick up on it, but he's, uh, they're angry. And when he tells the dream to them, he tells him, listen, to this dream I had, there we were, binding sheaves of grain in the field. Suddenly my sheaf stood up and your sheaves gathered round it and bowed down to my sheaf. And of course they responded the way that you would expect them to respond. Oh, you really going to reign over us? Like, I, f- I feel like that was the inflection in their voice. Oh, you really going to reign over us? And then he says, you can imagine his face like, well, yeah, why would you not think so? I mean, it's my dream. And, then he, and it's crazy because ultimately when they say that to him, it's, they double up. It's not just, you're really going to reign over us? And then they're thinking, are you really going to rule us? There's a heaviness in this. It's not just typical jealousy. It's almost like, it's, it's almost like adding insult to injury. 
Like, you've been the baby brother. We've had to go from protecting you to being overlooked because of who you are. We have not been treated the same way as you. Dad's always said to be careful not to let you get hurt. And now you are going to be ruling over us. We've not gotten any breaks. We've not gotten any of the things that you've gotten. And now you have the nerve to gleefully and blissfully tell us that you're going to be our ruler? Really? You would think that that would have been enough for him to be aware. You would think he'd be like, man, I, I should have sat a couple of plays out on that one. I probably shouldn't have said anything. But then he had another dream and told it to his brothers. Hey, guys, look. He said, I had another dream. And this time, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. He told his fathers and brothers, and his father rebuked him. What kind of dream is this that you've had? This is very telling. This is very telling because if Jacob was truly loving his son for the right reasons, then even that dream would not have made him feel the need to go rebuke him. But see, Jacob loved his son to the degree that he could love himself, which meant I'll show you favoritism for sure as long as you're never favored over me. Well, now he's mad. Wait a minute. Wait, 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 son. Back, 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 back as they say. Back up. Back up. Don't, don't, go, don't go too far right now. Okay, you want to do it to the concubine kids, you can do that all you want, but I'm your daddy. Like, you don't, you don't start saying I'm bowing down. To, I don't bow down to anybody. So he rebukes his son. And I guarantee you, Joseph didn't see that coming either. And he says that, he, you see the words, am I and your mother and your brothers really going to come and bow down to the ground before you? And so he had to, Jacob's doing some work. He's having to figure out what to make of it. Because again, this is his beloved son. And this is the one that he has treated very differently. And so he, he, the brothers are hating him and they're jealous. And the father, the scripture says, kept the matter in mind. So when you, just, when you just think about it there, you realize just how non-self-aware Joseph is and just how not aware Jacob is of the damage this is doing. Now, why might not? What, can you imagine, though, if Jacob had grown up? This is why I don't believe Jacob's family when he was a kid. Uh, or uh, this is why I don't think Jacob actually talked about a lot of the damage from his previous family. And I, I, I stress this. It's so important when people are at appropriate ages, to talk about some of the damage in our family history, because you teach your children valuable lessons when you do that. It might be hard for you. It might make you feel bad. It might be very hard to walk through stuff, but you pass on valuable lessons. And here's the thing, regardless of what's in our history, as Christians, we believe that God and Jesus is redeeming everything. So if he's redeeming our history, then, hey, that was a broken part in my history. Here's how God is redeeming that. That's how that cycle gets broken not by being silent and mute about it. So what would have happened if Jacob started spending time talking to his sons and saying, hey guys, let me tell you about some of the stuff that I did to your uncle Esau. Or let me tell you about some of the stuff that your grandfather Isaac did that was deceptive. Or let me talk to you about great-grandfather Abraham and the things that he did that were deceptive. You know, honestly, what normally happens is in most families, we only get the, 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 the celebratory stories that come down. We, we get like the things that were good. And some of it could be good and some of it might be embellished. But what's often not brought up, I don't know about you, but when I hear like family stories and there's like massive gaps and I don't really hear the rest of the story in those gaps. And they're like, well, you know, it was a long time ago. Yeah, but it wasn't too long. You, you told all the hero stories and you remember those vividly. 
But there's these gaps there, right? What would have happened if Jacob had been telling those stories to his sons, to his children? Hey, here's some things that have happened in our family. Hey, by the way, y'all got some cousins out there that were really done wrong by our side of the family. Hey, you may end up running in. Usually it'll just be, we don't mess with those, that side. That's typically what will happen within family. That's, that's the side. Those are the cousins we don't talk to. Those are the ones we don't rock with. And so this is where they are. They're like angry and angry, and they're, 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 they're repeating the same types of sin that their father, grandfather, great-grandfather uh, committed. And they may not even be aware of it. But you know who often is very aware when injustice has happened? The people on the receiving end. So the stories they're telling their kids are the things that really happen. This is why on a larger level, it's very important that you listen to the stories of people who have been marginalized. This is why it's important that you listen to the people who've been on the receiving end of injustice, because if it was your descendants or your ancestors that were the guilty ones, they're likely not telling you everything that happened. That's why we listen to the voices of those who have been oppressed. See, this is oftentimes when you get to this side of the conversation, whether it's family or country or uh, nationality, whatever, whenever you get to this part of the story, typically, if somebody comes to you and says, hey, um, yeah, you come from this, there were a lot of people that were in that group that you're whatever people came from that did X, Y, and Z. And usually the response is, why? Oh, no, I never heard that. My, my parents always told me X, Y, and Z. No, our family story is often just this, 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 and that. And I'm like, where are you getting that from? Are you getting that from the family or are you getting that from the people who are on the receiving end of the things that your family may have done? That's how you, listen, if we don't think like that, right? If we don't think like that, we never have a sense of a shared history. We never have a sense of a shared story. We just have two or three different narratives that are running around and the moment they collide, we end up having massive war, we end up having massive division and we don't know how to deal with it. And so I would be willing to bet that if the people who have been deceived, Esau's line, the Edomites, Ishmael's line, the Ishmaelites, when they come in contact with the true descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, they probably have two different stories as how they got there. One side is like, well, we were the blessed and chosen one, and that's the reason why. And the other side is going, yeah, true, maybe, but guess what? There was a whole bunch of shady stuff that you did to get there, and they're like battling back and forth to this day, actually. Shared history is important. Shared story is important, especially when favoritism is the reason why the things that happen, happen. And so you look at uh, the brothers and you see where, the, where they're at now. They're like, man, we're mad. We're angry. He's got all this stuff. He just shared with us two dreams about how he's special and we're not, because that's probably how they heard it. And so they're super, super upset. And now they have an opportunity. So you see, after they shared that dream, verse 12, his brothers had gone to pasture their father's flocks at Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, your brothers, you know, are pasturing the flocks at Shechem. Get ready. I'm sending you to them. And Joseph replied, I'm ready. Now, there's a lot even in that, right? Because there's a couple of questions you need to ask when you see this. First, is Jacob aware of just how bad the problem is? You see, parents that are so focused in seeing themselves and their kids, they don't see the real problems their kids are going through. They have no idea. When you're so obsessed with being so just excited about seeing uh, your, yourself in a mirror, you're so excited about seeing this, the ways in which this child is in your image, you have no clue about the real issues they're dealing with. Does he even know the lines then he's sending Joseph into? Honestly, at this point, he'd be, he'd be foolish to ever send his son alone 
far away. He sends them out to Shechem. So there's a couple of things here. Number one, he's going to send his son out with, with the, the boys that he knows, don't, he should know, hate him, don't care for him, don't seem to love him. The other question is, why is he sending him to Shechem alone? You remember what happened to Shechem, right? Shechem is where the horrific acts that we talked about last week happened. After the horrible rape of Dinah and the ways in which they kind of live out their bloodlust and go and kill all those men at Shechem. And now he's got, okay, he's probably plundered and taken a lot of that land for himself. You don't think there's like rebellious and vengeful, mind, vengeful minded people that are there just waiting? He sends his son out there alone to go see. Even that alone makes you wonder. Like, yes, I have faith in God, but at the same time, there's a lack of wisdom here too because he's so focused on something else. So he sends his son out. He sends him afar off. The script, uh, what we know is that uh, Shechem is about 80 miles away. So it's an 80-mile journey, and he sends his 17-year-old to go meet, to travel through these hard streets of people who probably hate them too. Get out there and then go to these brothers that also hate you. And he sends them alone to go do it. And so he, he's traveling out there, and he travels to Shechem. It's a dangerous trip. And he gets there, and verse 15 says, uh, uh, all of a sudden, well, eventually he's wandering, and a man found him there, wandering in the field. There's this idea in the Hebrew that there's just a lack of direction. So, like, he doesn't even really know where to go. There's, there just seems to be this blissful ignorance on Jacob's part. It's just like, hey, go out there. It's 80 miles out there somewhere in that direction. You'll see your brothers eventually. There's a whole bunch of them. You'll see them. And he's out there wandering, doesn't know where they are, doesn't know where to go, doesn't know which field to go to, not sure, doesn't see them there because they're not there. And so there's this stranger. Now, it's just the grace of God that this stranger doesn't happen to be maybe somebody who was related to the ones that had been killed before. Because this stranger sees him and goes, you need some help, right? And so he gives them help. He says, I'm looking, for, uh, my, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're pasturing their flocks? And so they moved on from here. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph set out after his brothers and found them at Dothan. That's another 13 miles. So this boy's traveled about almost 100 miles in a, in a land that's dangerous to him to go see brothers that are dangerous to him. And they saw him from a distance. How did they see him from a distance? Because he's wearing his special coat. <laughs> Here come future boy. So, he, so, so now they see him coming, and they're like, you see exactly what they're thinking. They say to one another, oh, look, here comes that dream expert. <laughs> so now, come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Do you know how long your anger has to, has to sit there and fester to the point where you're ready to actually kill a sibling? You know how long? Like, that, that doesn't just happen overnight. That doesn't just happen because of one argument, usually. Usually, when something happens, everybody was like, it's a, it was an argument of passion. It was a crime of passion. Yes, but those crimes of passion are things that have been building up, building up, building up. And so they see him, and it was like, this is the last straw. Daddy's boy's coming. He's probably coming to narc on us again. I'm so tired of being reminded of him. Let's, let's put him to sleep. And so they see him, and they start hatching their plan. They start hatching this plan, and they, as, as he's coming, they said, let's, let's kill him, let's throw him into one of the pits, and we can just say that a vicious animal ate him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Not only is that murderous, that's just petty. That's real petty. It's like, oh, you didn't see that coming, did you? 
this, this just reminds me, I think some of the older folks in the room remember this, when um, you would always see like these like psychic hotlines on TV all the time, and there would be certain celebrities that were there, and then one of the celebrities would get in like a whole lot of trouble. Remember Billy D. Williams way back in the day. Some of y'all remember Billy D. Williams. He had these, these things, these commercials for the psychic hotline, and eventually he ended up getting in trouble with the law for some things he'd done to his wife, and people were like, bet he didn't see that coming, did he? That's the kind of pettiness with which they're kind of applying this when they're looking like, let's kill him, let's send him down, see how them dreams help them now. And so they, they, they hatched this plan and they're looking. And when Reuben heard this, he tried to save him from them. Now, there's a lot of theories as to why Reuben would have felt a little bit differently, right? Why would he have felt something? He's the oldest. There's some responsibilities that he should have as the oldest. But he's also, we find out that he's also done something already that's brought a lot of shame to his father. Because he went unto one of his father's wives. He had a sexual relationship with one of his father's wives. Likely non-consensual, because women really didn't have the power of consent during that time anyhow, especially in that environment. And so he likely went in and, and abused his, his, his father's wife, and his father knew about it. So he already has this sense of shame, this sense of, uh, uh, obviously, he's been, he's been wrong. He's got that sin stain on him. And so there's probably a part of him that's like, I can't let dad out again. I, I've already shamed my father. I've already brought nothing but shame to his name. And I, I, I probably should. I got to do something. So, so he still doesn't mind his brother being done wrong. He's just going, for now, let's just instead, look at what he says. He says, let's, let, let's not take his life. Then Reuben said to him, don't shed blood. Throw him into the pit in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him because he was intending to rescue him from and return him to his father. So when Joseph, so that's their plan. They're like, instead, we're not going to kill him. It's because of Reuben that, that they don't uh, kill him. Reuben's like, listen, let's do something else instead. Let's just throw him into the pit. So Joseph's coming and is, you know, kind of bouncing. I imagine him prancing along, like, I'm here, guys. Party can start. Future boy. And he gets there. Gets to his brothers. They strip off Joseph's robe, the robe of many colors that he had on, then took him and threw him into the pit. The pit was empty, without water. So that probably was a hard fall, right? There was nothing really to break the fall. Threw him down there. Then they sat down to eat a meal. Now that right there is just some real shady stuff. It's like, throw that dude in the pit. Lunch! So, so, so now he's, he's down there dirty, probably scraped up, messed up, and they're out there having filet mignon, just chilling. And, and, and now uh, what you see is they have no feeling or no bad feelings about it. They're so comfortable. Some of the Jewish commentaries, the Midrash kind of points out just how heinous this kind of an act would be. And injustice has just occurred, and you can still sit down and eat comfortably. Now, that is its own sermon by itself, isn't it? How easy is it for us to either be complicit in the injustice of another and then sit down and say grace and then eat a meal? That's where they are. And many times that's where we are. And so they're, they're eating and they're having this, this meal. And then they look up and there's a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were carrying aromatic gum, balsam, and resin going down to Egypt. Now that in and of itself is a very interesting thing too, right? Because who are the Ishmaelites? These, these are like distant cousins. Think about this. Really put it together, okay? Joseph is the son of Jacob. 
And Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the brother of Ishmael. So ultimately, this, these guys are second, third, fourth cousins, right? And if you're an Ishmaelite, you've heard all of the stories, probably accurately to a large degree, of the ways in which your father was defrauded. Now, it, we saw that Esau reconciled with Jacob, but that was years later. So those stories probably have already gone out. The scripture makes clear that at least for Ishmael, he became this large nation like God told him. God told him he would be a great nation. So they already have their own set up cities. So they've probably, as, as a general Ishmaelite, they've probably heard all of the stories of what happened to Ishmael. All of the ways that, that their forefather was cast out into the desert with his mother, left with nothing because of the favoritism that was shown, and then uh, Abraham's lack of refusal to really bring real justice and to bring real reconciliation. And so they've known that story over and over and over again, and now they come to a descendant of Isaac. This is their chance to get their own version of reparations, isn't it? They're like, we can get a little bit of our just dessert. We can, get a little, we can enact a little bit of vengeance on our end because we've got one of those folks that came from Isaac. And we hear that Isaac's son is, is uh, Israel. So God, however they determined to, to view him, God is now the one that's promising something to that one. You know what? Let's go get him. And so after Reuben makes his proposal and they, they go and they sit down and eat, and all of a sudden, now you've got these folks, these Ishmaelites that are coming. And Judah sees them and says to his brothers, what do we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? What do we gain if we do that? Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him for he is our brother, our own flesh. Think about this. So Reuben's already made the proposal, but Judah's probably still been thinking about killing him anyway. Because you would think that if after Reuben said what he said, that it would be done. They'd be like, okay, Reuben spoke. He's the oldest, we're good. But Judah's the one that's sitting there like, yeah, I heard Reuben, but he got to go. Because by the time we take him home, he's going to have another dream. And I don't know if I can hear that either. So Judah's already thinking that, clearly, because now he has to bring it up again and say, hey, listen, instead of, instead of killing him, and then it's, it's weird, when you want to do something, it's so weird when you want to do something horrible and unjust to someone, first, you get to compare it to how much worse you could have been to make yourself feel justified in doing something bad to someone. Hey, you did this to me. Yeah, but at least I didn't do that to you. Hey, you were really uh, offensive in the words you used to me. Yeah, but it's not like I hit you. Hey, you, you hit me and that hurt. It's not like you're bleeding. See, oftentimes that's what, what we do. We're almost like, or we'll, or we'll compare ourselves to somebody else that's done something way worse. So we'll measure ourselves up against some crazy buffoon. The buffoon stuff is really bad. And you go, well, I wasn't the buffoon, so I must be okay. But Judah's like, well, you know, instead of killing them, let's do the noble thing. I mean, he is our brother. You really think he cares about the fact that he's a brother? No, this is, how we do to, this is what we do to justify ourselves. We, tell, we convince ourselves, I'm not as bad as I could be. Therefore, I'm, what I'm doing must be okay. So Judah, hey guys, listen, we don't get anything. That's another thing. He kind of roots it in like being able to get something back. Hey guys, we, if he dies, we just, we just lose. We don't gain anything. I mean, we gain some peace and quiet. We don't listen to dreams anymore, but we really don't gain anything. So, Instead, let's do this. Come on, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Not lay a hand on him, because he's our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers agreed. When Midianite traders passed by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the pit and sold him 
for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites who took Joseph to Egypt. So they went and they took him. Now, clearly they did that separate, right? Somehow Reuben didn't, somehow Reuben didn't know. So they may have known that Reuben was, was probably a little bit sweeter on him and probably felt some, they, and they knew what Reuben had done with their father's wife. So they're probably like, Reuben's probably feeling guilty. So let's do this secretly. They do that because when Reuben goes to the pit, he gets there to go rescue his brother. He goes there to go pull his brother up. He doesn't want to have to go back to his father and face him and say, I have failed you again. And I failed you horribly. So they, Reuben returns to the pit, saw Joseph was not there, tore his clothes, right? It's a sign of mourning. They would rip their clothes. And, and uh, so often that was like a big sign of I'm so broken. And this is a symbol of my brokenness. Tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? You know what I never realized in reading this? As I've heard this story tons of times, I've, I have the animated version of this that was uh, done by the same people who did Prince of Egypt, right? And, and I remember watching that. And the one thing that I never really got was, I don't know that Reuben ever knows that it was them that actually uh, sold him at first. We don't know that for sure because the whole time he, he goes to his brother and says, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? And, that, and so he doesn't really know how. We don't know if the brothers ever said, hey, we got to admit to you, we were the ones that deceived you. Again, you see how that family pattern starts to happen, the deception. So they're angry. They're all angry together. That's why it's really, it's really dangerous, right? Here's the one thing that I've said. I'll say this to couples, even to people who are dating. I'm always like, always, I tell women this, always pay close attention to how a man treats a woman he's not attracted to. Always pay attention to someone who, who, how people, pay attention to how people treat those that they may not be really close to. If they're extremely rude, deceptive, mean-spirited, vindictive, jealous to the people that they don't claim to really love, just wait until the gun is turned in your direction. You see, all of these brothers, they all had one thing in common, their hatred for Joseph. But what happens when they now have hatred pointed toward you? Pay close attention. Sometimes people are in relationships and they get really shocked when all of a sudden it was cute when he was super mean to that waitress over there. It was cute. That's, he just, he's just real direct. That's all. Till he's direct to you. Then you're like, wait, no, why are you doing that to me? I'm, I'm the loved one, right? See, this is what happens. So now Reuben has no, he doesn't even know he's being deceived. He goes to his brothers and is like, hey, he's gone, guys. He's gone. And so what do they do? They're like, well, man, okay, Reuben. Yeah, that's messed up. I guess we got to figure out a way to cover it up, man. So they do. He went back to his brothers, said, the boy is gone. What am I going to do? They took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a male goat, and dipped the robe in its blood. They sent the robe of many colors to their father and said, we found this. Examine it. Is it your son's robe or not? Isn't this really similar to the ways in which Jacob deceived his own father? It's just, it's uncanny when you really look at how family dysfunction repeats itself. They probably don't even know that story. And yet they're deceiving their father in similar ways that their father deceived his father. And his father recognized it. It is my son's robe, he said. A vicious animal has devoured him. Joseph has been torn to pieces. They probably had to be really relieved because their father helped create a story for them before they ever had to do it. And so now he's, uh, Jacob tore his clothes, sign of mourning, put sackcloth around his waist, another sign of mourning, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters tried to comfort him, 
but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will go down to Sheol to my son mourning. And his father wept for him. And meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and the captain of the guards. The one thing that we pointed out last week that we, we would be remiss if we didn't point out here is the way in which he mourns for his son in ways he never mourned for his daughter. And I think and I hope we're seeing something here. The reason why, one of the reasons why it was easy to mourn for his son was largely because of the ways in which his son was helpful in worshiping himself. See, he didn't see himself in his daughter. He saw himself in his son. And so it was easy. It's sad that he would actually show he had not one word to say about what happened to his daughter. But now he's coming out of his clothes for his son. And we could look at that and go, that's just, and there's love for sure, but it's, it's love plus something else. It's love combined with a form of self-worship. You see, if he really thought, man, I love my children in the ways that they uh, image Jehovah, then, man, the uh, image-bearing aspects of my daughter should enrage me and make me want to see something uh, happen to heal that situation. But that wasn't the case, right? Because sadly, sadly, throughout history and even today, The image-bearing ability of women is always paled in comparison to the image-bearing ability of men. So we we can't just leave that aside. But the other thing we have to look at is this. When we think about, we we said before, this all comes back to favoritism. This all comes back to the ways in which you show inequitable love to one or inequitable love amongst many. So some people get real, genuine love, provision, protection, justice. They, they, they have a certain degree of real ways that they're loved and cared for, and then someone over here is not. And you're claiming you love everyone, but, but we don't. So whether we have children or not, are there ways in which we are guilty, can be guilty, of that kind of favoritism? Are there ways that we can actually, hey, I'm all about making sure that certain groups have provision, but not others. Are there ways in which certain people should be able to have real protection under the law, but not others? Are there ways that certain people should be free from certain uh, horrific injustices, but not others? It's really easy for us to say, man, I, I love everyone. And yet I can look on TV, watch a video of thousands of herded image bearers thrown into a fenced area without toothbrushes, food, regular hygiene products, and then go to my table, say, God is good, God is great, and then eat and say my prayers and go to bed. Am I guilty of a form of favoritism? Am I guilty of a way in which I just don't genuinely love people the way I'm called to love people? See, it's easy to be able to start with family because family's very immediate, right? But ultimately, when the call that we, we quote many times in this church, the mandate that God gives us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly, ultimately, that is, ensure that you don't, that you don't uh, traffic in favoritism. That's really what that's a call to. If I'm doing justice, I'm making sure that there is no broken equity anywhere, that people are able to live life the way they're meant to live life. So if I'm called to do that, then if I'm, in, in, in Jacob's case, I want to make sure that there's no inequity here amongst my children. And see, this is where it's interesting when you see how God calls his people, whether Israel in the old or the church in the new, he's always said, listen, your job anywhere you go is to root out any area of injustice. Don't just speak out against it. Do justice. 
Find ways to fix that thing. Find ways to change that thing. Find ways to break that thing. And the thing that stops us from doing that, whether we admit it or not, is this deep abiding favoritism. It's not because we're not willing to do the act, because if the act was occurring to someone we loved or we knew, then we would have something to say. And we would do it. And conversely, If someone we love or someone that we know might be guilty of doing something harmful to others, our favoritism is the reason why we won't speak out. Our favoritism is the reason why we won't actually say, hey, we still got to hold the line and know exactly what God has said about this. But it's our favoritism that stops it. That's the reason why the scripture makes it clear God's not a respecter of persons. That's the reason why the scripture tells us not to show partiality to anyone. Why? Because favoritism is actually sin. And I'll end with this. The one thing, the only being that can, that can practice favoritism and it's in our best interest is God. God's the only one that gets to show favoritism. You know why, right? And it's, it's unique the way that his favoritism works. See, God shows favoritism, not just in what we see in the scriptures. It looks like he chose this one, didn't choose this one, and they get blessed and they don't. Beyond that, God shows favoritism. How do we know this? Think about it this way. When you look at how God looks at the son that he loves. See, he does have a favorite son, right? He has one son, his beloved son, his only begotten son, and he loves him. Several times in the New Testament, he looks at the son and says, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. I am pleased in you. I see myself in you. See, God can do that. God can look, unlike us, he can look at his son and say, I see myself in you. I love you. I am for you. But here's what's different. You see, in the way that Jacob, Jacob loved his son, Joseph, and Jacob gave to his son over his other sons. He gave to his son to the detriment of his other sons. But what Jesus, what God does, he doesn't just give for his son. He gives his son on behalf of the ones that aren't the favored ones. He gives his son For the ones that, think about this, when you are given, when when you think about what happens in Joseph's case, Joseph's treated like the loved one, the beloved one, and, and the brothers really feel like the enemies. And what's interesting is Jesus gives his life for his enemies. So God takes the favorite son. He takes the favorite, and then he treats him like the enemy. I think he takes the enemy, and he treats him like the favorite. God's the only one that can show favoritism, and it's in your best interest that he does. Consider 1 Peter 3.18. I'll close. He says this. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. You think about that. The righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous for the unrighteous. Where are we in that story? Well, man, I... Lord, I see I'm the unrighteous. If I'm, I almost have to get past whatever my mom and dad always told me and how they taught me and how they showed me and they loved me and that was great. But I have to realize that I'm not the one that should be the favorite. I really shouldn't expect to be the favorite. And ultimately, if I have a big enough view of who you are and a big enough view of who your son is, I'm overwhelmed by the ways in which your favorite son, your beloved son, God in the flesh, deserving of every bit of praise possible, undeserving of any kind of death, undeserving of any kind of beating, undeserving of any kind of humiliation, endured all of that for me. When I'm overwhelmed by that, 
I can't help but to say, I cannot show favoritism to anyone. I, I just can't. Because, because ultimately, I'm, I'm actually a recipient of mercy, undeserved favor. That's what we say. When we say we have grace and mercy, this undeserved favor, that means I'm not deserving of being the favorite. And yet Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, makes me his. So where are we? Are we able to identify? Where's that real sin of favoritism? We, we rarely talk about that as like a real sin. It's almost like a character flaw. But when the scripture says don't show partiality, it's making it very clear that any type of favoritism is real sin. It offends the very nature and character of God. So what does favoritism look like for me individually in my family? What does favoritism look like for me as a citizen? What does favoritism look like for me as a neighbor? See, this goes beyond just whether or not I have kids or not. It really has to do with whether or not I have neighbors. And if I have neighbors, Lord, make me not guilty of the sin of favoritism. Make me be so overwhelmed by the ways in which you knew that I was the enemy. You gave your life, and the one that should have gotten all of the favor, you gave him all of the punishment, and then you give us his righteousness. That's the gospel. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your favor. Not a favor that we've earned, not a favor that we deserve, not a favor that uh, we feel like that we have uh, found some clever way to procure for ourselves. God, we are so overwhelmed. I pray that we are, that we would see that, that we ultimately have just been pure recipients of your grace. And yet, God, as we think through that, I pray that you would uh, impress upon our hearts all the ways in which we are guilty of real favoritism. Maybe it's in our families. Maybe it's amongst friendships. Maybe it's among uh, who we are as citizens in this country. God, I pray that we would be aware that there's always somebody who pays the price for favoritism. Favoritism always occurs at the expense of another. So God, I pray that our abilities to image you well, our abilities to neighbor well, our abilities to love well, I pray that they would be empowered. I pray that they would be redeemed. I pray that they would be refined as you root out the sin of favoritism. God, give us the eyes to see, the ears to hear, the, the heart to receive what it means to be a true loving father, mother, brother, sister, friend, cousin, neighbor, citizen. God, I pray that we would see how serious this is. There's a sense of urgency. You put this story here for us to see so many things. I pray that we would see ourselves. I pray that we would see ourselves in the brothers. I pray that we would see ourselves in Jacob. I pray that we would even see ourselves and possibly even the, the lack of self-awareness in Joseph. And God, ultimately, I pray that we would see that there really is no other, no other hope. Our hope is not to be a better Jacob. Our hope is not to be a better Joseph. Our hope is not to be a, a, a better uh, brother. God, I pray that we would see our hope is truly in you. Our hope is truly to look like Jesus. So Father, will you do that? I pray that we pray it all the time that you would break us and then remake us to look, to love, to lead like you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we come to the table,
Y'all, th- this, is, this is really what we're saying we truly believe when we come and do this. When we come, we go, Lord, I have business to do with you. There are things that I have to, I'm realizing, I'm having to acknowledge every time I come before your presence. I'm acknowledging both the rejoicing I have in my heart for the ways in which you have redeemed me, the promise that you've made to call me to yourself, to remake me, to look like you, all the ways in which you're doing that work, that sanctifying work. I'm reminded of it. I'm rejoicing in it. And I'm broken by all the ways that that I'm I'm reminded that it's not all done. I'm reminded of ways in which I'm still farther away than I should be. I'm, I'm reminded even now as I think about this sermon, I'm reminded about the ways in which, man, I... I still do have some partiality. I, I have some favoritism that's legitimately here. If nothing else, many times I can go into a place and I might see who's there, but I don't even, it doesn't even dawn on me to ask who's not here and why. If I thought my family deserved to be there, I would certainly care that they're not there. So God, I know that I have a sin of favoritism in my heart. But God, you tell us that you are faithful and just to forgive. And so I come with a heart that's heavy, I come with a heart that is broken, but I come with a heart that is reminded that I am indeed pardoned because of the favored one that died in my place. If this is true for you, if this is what you cling to, then family, this is our table. It's a table of common unity. So I don't come if I have a heart that says, you know what, yeah, I I don't know that I'm ready to accept what it means to truly... uh, not show favoritism to certain people. God, you might even be pricking my heart and showing me how I might indeed be guilty of this, but I really don't know if I really want to repent from this. Then this is something, let this time pass. Let this time pass and let this be time to really do business with the Lord. You see, Paul says to come and examine ourselves first before we come. We don't want to come take it unworthily. What do we mean by that? We don't just mean ensure that there's no blatant demonstrative sin. That also very true. Is there sin in my heart that I have pretty much determined not to repent from? Then yes, I need to let this time pass too. Or I may not even be a believer. I don't know that I believe this at all. Let this time pass. Jesus wants to do business with you. He wants to meet you where you are. If this is If this is true, this is what we hold to, this is what we cling to, then this is yours. As our volunteers come, we just remind you that here at Icon, we do uh, communion by the process of intinction. And what that means is starting in the back uh, of the sanctuary, you'll walk down the middle aisle, come take a piece of gluten-free bread, dip it in wine or juice as you see fit. You know, when we, we say these words of institution, Try to really picture, try to picture the one who is the favorite son looking at the ones who act or will act like his enemies and consider the words that he says to see how God's favoritism really works. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he gave thanks for the Passover meal and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat of it. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he took the cup and he said, this cup is my blood, the blood of a new covenant, blood poured out for the remission of sins, the favorite son pouring out his life for the enemy. Take and drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. Here's what Paul says. Paul reminds us, he says that every single time we do this, 
when we engage in this, when we engage our hearts in this, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he returns. We are proclaiming that God made us one of his favorites by giving his favorite son for us. And if he is still risen, if his tomb is empty, then he is coming to finish the work of perfecting us as his favorite children. This is true for you. If this gives you hope, if this gives you comfort, then come, taste and see, be reminded that our God, our Savior, the favored one, is indeed good. Let's eat together.